Before this week's episode, I would just like to take the time out to give a heads up, as this episode features some very heavy topics, ranging from suicide to depression to anxiety. And if you need to dip out now, totally understandable. I just wanted to give you a heads up. Thank you. You don't have to pick up your toys, okay? You can leave them right there on the floor. So tonight when the terrible toy-eating tuchel comes tiptoeing in through the crack in the door, he'll crunch all your soldiers, he'll munch on your trucks, he'll chew your cook puppets to shreds, he'll swallow your big wheel and slurp up your paints and bite off your dear Larry's heads, and then he'll wipe off his lips with the sails of your ships, and then making a burpity noise, he'll slither away, but hey, that's okay, you don't have to pick up your toys. The word toy is defined as an object for a child to play with. And while yes, it is true most toys are made of plastic or stuffed with fluff, there is one facet of the world of our childhood that seems to be overlooked, and those are books. Our first trips into the worlds far beyond our own with characters that we could see ourselves in, and amongst the who's who of children's books, there are very few with a long-lasting legacy. This is the story of the life of Shel Silverstein. This is Toys R Us. All of my best friends are toys. Oh boy, all of my best friends are toys. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, all of my best friends are toys. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to the Toys R Us podcast. Each week we take a look into the toy that helped us to become creative and imaginative people. My name is Richard Hunt, and with me on this journey into our past is my cousin and co-host, Brian Muth. I like to think that I'm a creative and imaginative person. Yes. Eccentric. Uh, Very much so, yes. Yes. Um, Now, toys. Yes. I think that the definition leaves a lot of wiggle room. Sure. Right? There's a little bit of ambiguity involved. Because I think that you cannot think back to childhood... Without thinking of fond, thinking fondly of the books that you read, absolutely in childhood, absolutely. You know? Case in point, scary stories to read in the dark being made into a movie that is fucking great. That is so exciting. Oh God, it looks tremendously awesome. Yes, Guillermo. Yeah. yeah. Um, and being a wordy little kid like I was, mm. to say that Shel Silverstein was a big influence on me is an understatement. Big time. That being said. Are you ready for me to take you on a journey into his life? Buckle up, everybody. So, we're going to start our story in the early years of the Great Depression. More specifically, September 25th, 1930. This is where we meet up in Chicago, in Logan Square, with Helen and Nathan Silverstein, who are now the proud parents of a baby boy. A baby boy named Sheldon Allen Silverstein. Sheldon. Young Sheldon... Not to be confused with that god-awful spin-off of an already god-awful show. That's terrible. Um, well, young Sheldon had athletic aspirations, but it didn't really work out for him. Um, he discovered that his calling was in the arts. And you know what? Same. We're, we're better off for it, too. Yes. Um, I played t-ball for, like, three days, and I'm like, nah. Yeah, I'm fucking I bouncing. played soccer, played a little basketball, and it's Can't, not my thing. Nah, not my cup of tea. Nope. To say the least. Yeah, me neither. Um, not everybody needs to play sports. No, though. it's true. You know, we need the arts. We do. Uh, in an interview with Gene F. Mercer for Publishers Weekly, he described his childhood. He says, When I was a kid, 12, 13, 14, around there, 
I would much rather have been a good baseball player or a hit with the girls, but I couldn't play ball and I couldn't dance. Luckily, the girls didn't want me. Not much I could do about that. So I started to draw and write. I was also lucky that I didn't have anybody to copy or be impressed by. I had to develop my own style. And I was creating before I knew there was a Thurber, a Benchley, a Price, and a Steinberg. I never saw their work till I was around 30. By the time I got to where I was attracting girls, I was already into work, and that was more important to me. <laughs> Mr. Chance, ladies. Mr. Chance. Shell dropped it down and started chasing more artistic pursuits. I like him. He was never really good in studies. He just he couldn't find himself adjusting anywhere. Hmm. Um, he was thrown out of University of Illinois in Urbana. Okay. He dropped out of the Art Institute of, Ch- Art Institute of Chicago. Hmm. And then he couldn't really find his groove until he entered Roosevelt University, where his talent was recognized and nurtured by his English professor. So that's where he began writing and cartooning for the student paper, The Torch. Okay. Wherein he launched his lifelong career in skewering authority figures. Ha! His first published cartoon was that of a naked student holding a cigarette while confronting an angry professor. The caption read, What do you mean, no smoking? I thought this was a liberal school. <laughs> Zing! Which is like that fucking, like, that era of, like, uh-huh. smarkiness. Yep. So good. Uh, aside from receiving a little artistic encouragement at Roosevelt, Shell didn't exactly get a lot out of college. Summing up the experience by saying, I didn't get laid much, I didn't learn much, and those are the two worst things that can happen to a guy. <laughs> Before he knew it, it was 1953, and he didn't even get the chance to finish school. Though he's convinced he wouldn't have. Yeah. Because he was shipped off to serve in the Korean War. Uh-huh, yep. Uh, his tour of duty likely influenced his dark world view. Um, but it definitely shaped his emerging career path. Well, I'd say war is enough to change anybody's war- oh, uh, yeah. world view. I but mean, war never changes. That's true. Um, yeah, oddly enough, he earned his first art-related paycheck as a journalist and cartoonist for the Pacific edition of the U.S. military newspaper, Stars and Stripes. Really? Yeah. I like it. Uh, Despite the hard-ass military environment around him, he couldn't resist the urge to taking jabs at the powers that be in his work. In fact, he narrowly avoided the world's first cartoon-related court-martial over a comic strip that seemed to imply officers were dressing their families in stolen uniforms. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this led to stern instructions that only civilians and animals were proper topics for criticism. Oh, damn. Got him. So the army, the army is always, or like, the fucking military in general has always been such a, like, pick me type of bitch. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Oh, my God. People can fucking poke fun at you, okay? Yeah. You're not fucking above the law. No. Although not exactly a yay military kind of fellow. Shell nevertheless appreciated the opportunities the Army gave him to travel and hone his craft. After being discharged in 1955, he returned to Chicago and started cartooning on a freelance basis. His hard work soon paid off, and he started landing gigs at magazines such as Look, Sports Illustrated, and This Week. Okay. But then he hit the jackpot. Boom. Because he met Hugh Hefner, who got in on the almost ground floor level of Playboy. Yep which had premiered just two years prior. From 1956 on, he was known to live intermittently with his new pal at the Playboy Mansion, which was actually located in Chicago until moving to Los Angeles in 1971. That is baller. Yeah. While he was living there, he continuously contributed articles 
as well as plenty of not-quite-kid-friendly comic strips. Yep. Given the whole, you know, writing for Playboy thing, Shel Silverstein was hardly a prime candidate to become the world's next great children's author. Right. Yeah. After all, the guy was not shy about his distaste for the genre. A fact evident in his 1961 book, Uncle Shelby's ABZ book. (laughs) I love that title. Yeah. A primer for tender young minds. Excerpted in Playboy, the adult book spoofed the Dick and Jane genre with lines such as, See the baby play. Play, baby, play. Pretty, pretty baby. Mommy loves the baby more than she loves you. (laughs) The the ABZ book made it clear that Silverstein hated the condescending brand of writing often used in children's literature. And and in a if-you-can't-beat-em-join-them move, after some convincing, Silverstein from his friend and children's author-slash-illustrator Tommy Euninger, along with famed Harper and Row children's editor Ursula Nordstrom, Shell was up to the task. All right. So basically, it's just like, you know what? Fuck it. If if these people are writing to kids like they're idiots, yeah. I'm going to come in here and change it. Yeah. Which is commendable. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, he's absolutely right. People want to talk about, like, you know, children are our futures, but then you fucking talk to them like, like they're, they're idiots. idiots. And God, a, I mean, don't a lot get me wrong, it, kids are idiots. Oh, they are. But these are the same people that aren't getting them vaccinated. Yeah. And are trying to heal them with essential, essential oils. Essential oils and it's like, stop. burning sage. Fucking vaccinate your child. Oh, Why God. is this something that needs to be said? It's all because of Jenny McCarthy and that junk science bullshit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That she bought into. That science, or to quote he, a friend of mine, that junk science is faker than McCarthy's tits. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh... And that guy who made that article came out to say that it's fucking fake anyway. Yeah, I mean, and he lost his medical license, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, he did. Fucking idiot, man. Ugh. Blind leading the goddamn blind. Um, so we hop forward to 1963. And a now 32-year-old Shel Silverstein published his first children's book, Uncle Shelby's Story of Lefcidio the Lion Who Shot Back. Mm. The tale, in an inappropriately... Silverstein twisted fashion is about a marshmallow-loving lion who faces an identity crisis after becoming a celebrated marksman. So a that seems like an interesting concept. A fucking lion with a gun. You know, tables are turned. Good. Yeah. yeah. I think these fucking idiots that, like take fucking pictures with lions that they fucking sniped from. Ugh. God knows how long away. That, that disgusts me. It's like you didn't do anything. Yeah, you, you hid behind a bush. And you miles and miles away him and like fucking a coward. Him. Yeah. Get close to him when he's alive. Uh-huh. Fucking idiot. Yeah, he's not even going to be posing with you. He's going to be eating you. Oh, yeah, you'll be inside of him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a huge hit, though. Yeah, like, I bet it was. Nailed it. By 1974, it had plenty of company, including Uncle Shelby's A Giraffe and a Half, Who Wants a Cheap Rhinoceros?, and two books that would eventually rank among the 20 best-selling children's books of all times, The Giving Tree and Where the Sidewalk Ends. Yeah. Poetry collections, such as Where the Sidewalk Ends, and later down the line, A Light in the Attic and Falling Up, became instant classics for obvious reasons. They featured his trademark giddy style and his unmistakable talent for crafting verses as pliable as putty. The dude was basically the Eminem of the 70s. He was. Because who else can write lines like, 
Washable, mendable, highly dependable, buyable, bakeable, always available, bounceable, shakeable, almost unbreakable, twist table, turntable man. <laughs> that motherfucker. And he just did that in all in one take. So. I did. I did. That was incredible. Thank you. Well done. Thank you. Uh, Shell appealed to young readers with unpretentious language, crisp but wacky black and white drawings, yep. and memorable characters. But when you attempt to push the envelope and bend general children's books expectations, you're bound to take some heat. Oh, absolutely. Both Where the Sidewalk Ends and A Light in the Attic were banned from various libraries and tar- targeted by those shitty, like, angry mom groups. I hate angry mom groups. Who thought the poems and pictures were too weird, too gross, and too anti-authoritarian, or otherwise well, yeah. too much. That was the fucking point. For, quote, children's fragile minds. Oh, fuck that. If they're fragile minds, it's because you're a fucking shitty parent. Yeah. You're keeping them down with your shitty parenting, making why, them fragile. Why is little Timmy's mind so fucking fragile yeah. that you have to reach out and try to get a book banned? Yeah. Teach him. Yeah. The world is not fucking black and white. Seriously. I mean, stop like, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Um, projecting yes. your your... Yes. Insecurities and your bullshit onto the kid. Let the kid develop. Exactly. Like all these fucking like, you could tell, man. So many like, so many legacies could have been changed if kids that got forced into sports because their dad played football, yeah, went on to do something else that they want to do. You know, instead, no. no, no son, you gotta play football. No son of mine is playing a piano. Yeah. Like, shut the fuck up. Yeah. It's like, let, okay. him, let him do what he wants, man. I mean... He could be the fucking... He could, a prodigy. Yeah. And you have no fucking idea because you want him to fucking play football. Yeah. It's and now, like, hey, congratulations. Now he has traumatic brain injuries. Yeah. yeah. Good job. That's now we fucking, can't play the fucking piano anymore, asshole. That's nationalism at its best. Huzzah. Honestly. America. Fucking Jesus. Um... In fact, opponents called Silverstein's poems everything from satanic, sexual, and anti-Christian. But the worst is cannibalistic. No, see, no, I never, even as a kid, I never got that impression out no. of any of his poems at no. all. No, it's it's really like even to this day, people fucking reading into things too hard. Yeah, stop. You got too much fucking time on your hands. Look. Freud said it best. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Exactly. Um, quite a few people took serious issue with the Where the Sidewalk Ends poem, Dreadful, which contains such verses as, Someone ate the baby. What a frightful thing to eat. Someone ate the baby, though she wasn't very sweet. It was a heartless thing to do. The policemen haven't got a clue. I simply can't imagine who would go and eat the baby. Nah. <laughs> Got him. Which is fucking. It's it's. No one's gonna eat a fucking notice, baby. Yeah, I mean it's dark, but it's like funny dark. It's it's like it's. That's like these parents that are like moms, especially. Uh, we have family coming over. Put pants on. Mm-hmm. There's gonna be men in the house. What type of fucking men are you inviting yeah, to your house? What the fuck? It's like, like it's their uncle or their cousin yeah. or something. Like if, what? There shouldn't be any issues no. like that. I mean, that's no. if you're telling your kids to do that because you're, look, you got 
bigger problems. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's some skeletons in some closets There, yes. Yes. Um, But you know what? Thank God for those parent groups, because the threat of babies being eaten was such an impending threat. It was. I mean, I remember the baby eating craze like it was yesterday. I barely escaped with my life. (laughs) I still have the bite mark to prove it. (laughs) And it's like, these are the same parents... That would, like, hustle the family in front of the TV to watch The Honeymooners, mm-hmm. where a dude would just continuously threaten to beat, beat the, shit the shit out of his, his wife. wife. Yeah. yeah. But no, don't read that man's book. He's yeah. going to eat a baby. Domestic clearly. violence is cool, but, I mean, eating a baby, that's over the line. Jesus Christ. Let's, hey, let's watch uh, All in the Family. Yeah. Let, let's watch this bigot. I mean, he's a beloved American character, okay? He is okay? a beloved American character, but he's a goddamn bigot. <sighs> Those who deemed his work as unfit for children were certainly extremists. But that's not to say that good old Uncle Shelby didn't have a dark side that could be unnerving at times. I'm sure. Uh, There's hints of this in The Giving Tree, which tells the story of a generous tree that repeatedly donates parts of itself to a needy boy until it's nothing more than a stump. Which is like... That's pretty dark, but I understand the logic behind it. Think think of people that are empathetic. Uh Uh-huh. Right? That's or exactly you have people what I was that just too. give and give and give, and on the inside they're they fucking dying. dead. Yeah, but they do their best to like bring light into the world for everybody else. Yep, you know, I understand that, and it's a struggle. And it is a lot of people. Like Robin Williams again is yep. one of these people. You know, he kept giving and giving and giving until he literally had nothing left. Yep, and it's. Tapped out. And it's the same fucking... And it pisses me off, man. The same people that would, like, go and make posts like, man, I can't believe Ron Williams is dead. Next day, I go to school and fucking bully somebody. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you're part of the fucking problem. Yeah. You know? Yeah. like you Give me your lunch money, Poindexter. Yeah. It's like, no, fuck, fuck you, dude. Stop. Yes. Leave that gay kid alone. Yeah. Leave that black kid alone. Yeah. Leave that fat kid alone. You know, like, yeah. so what? Somebody has glasses. So what? Somebody has braces. Right. Life fucking sucks for everybody. Yeah, and it's you know? and it's even worse when you're a kid because oh, yeah. you're just starting to figure out the world and you're like, trying to figure out who the fuck you are, right? Without society already already putting labels on you, yeah. You know, like it got to a point for me in school where like I I did not let being fat be an issue for me. No, same here. If and people now I'm like. Bro, what are you going to say to me that I have not already heard? Right. It's you know like, what I mean? There's like, nothing that you can say. If you can say something to me that I haven't heard, I will applaud you because yeah. I've fucking heard everything. Yep. You're not coming at me with new information. No. I know who I am. I'm fine with who I am. No. Just because you're insecure and mm-hmm. you want to talk shit, that doesn't give you the right to fucking do it. Yeah. There's a Key and Peel sketch where, like, oh, really? he's a bully. Oh, jeez. But geez. then he, like, keeps breaking down about, like, you know, like, he's like, that's so my dad's approval. And it's like, uh, that's what it is, yeah. man. No, that's what it is, too, yeah. Unless you get into a good cycle, it's, for the most part, a lot of people's parents fuck them up. Yeah. Because their parents were fucked up. Yeah. And so on and so forth. It's a it's about breaking. Cycle. It's about breaking that mold. It is. You know? It, it's hard to do. It really is hard it's, to get past some of the yeah. things, but... I think that if you can get past it, you're going to be a better person for it. I think you're absolutely right. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, like, look at my dad, right? Yeah. And your mom. Yeah. Now, 
they had a really shitty childhood. They had a super shitty childhood. And it affected them both in ways that could have easily been passed on to me or you. Yeah. But we rose above it. We did. Yes. And that's not to say it didn't take a toll. It... That's not to say that, like, our mental stability isn't fucking shot. Yeah. Because you had to break out of those constraints. Yeah. But by doing so, we're better for it. We created a stronger person. Right. Yeah. As a result. It's, it's, it's basically like the three picks. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, first generation, it's fucking hay. Hay, yeah. Boom, blown down. Gone. Second generation, twigs, right? Boom, gone. But you should strive to have whatever's coming from you be brick. You gotta be the brick. Because if you're not, you're just gonna fucking crumple. Blow over. You gotta watch that wolf fucking dive into your chimney and fucking be burnt to death. Yep. Because if not, the wolf's gonna get you. I'm con- I'm continually stoked in that fire. I don't know. Oh, about you. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm always throwing a log I'm in preparation s- I'm for the I'm sitting there wolf. with a fucking poker. It's going. Oh yeah. I hear that shit. It's cracking. I'm sitting there. Fuck a fucking virtual Yule log. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got that Give me the real going thing. all fucking year. Um, although the book is considered a classic today, the Giving Tree, um, took it. It took four years before he found anyone. Willing to publish it. Really? Yeah. That's... Because it was... I mean, it was very nihilistic. Yeah. It was. But goes back to the thing that you have to make sure that kids know life is not always fucking roses. Right. You know? Definitely there's gonna be There's going to be bad days. Yeah, there's there's going to be, be really times. fucking bad days. Yep. But the moments in between... That's what you kind of live for, yes. you know? Yeah. Not everybody can make it. It's true. You know, and it's it, it's not... I hate people that say suicide is selfish. It's not. No. Nobody wants to fucking die. No. You know what I mean? Like, you, people have done it. People continue to do it. Someone did it now. Yeah. Someone did it now. You know what I mean? Like, but that's not because they don't like you as a person or right. they don't love you. That's right. The They're seeking sh- the last form of shelter. Oh, yeah. That's it. If you if you're facing a tornado head on mm-hmm. and every shelter door around you is locked, yep. you're fucking gone with the tornado. Yep. You know, and there's there there's literally You never say you that do. about people that fucking die in house fires or anything. Oh, they're right. selfish. No. No. It took them. Yeah. The fire took them. And that's basically what depression is, is a fire. It is. And you it know? burns everything. <laughs> it's everything. Really fucking, yeah. Yep. And People either douse it with gasoline or find a way to fucking get rid of anything that's flammable. Yeah. Or try to bring it under some form of controlled burn. Right. Yeah. Um, The only reason it really got published is because his other books, Ford, Harper, and Rowe... Did so well? Did so well that they were just like, you know what? Fine, we'll throw you this bone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... His desire to reverse dopey endings and shiny happy storylines may have simply been a result of his ta- uh, distaste for predictability. Yeah, you know, like I can he, see that. he wanted to break out of the mold. He didn't want to sure. be like sunshine and lollipops. ABC, and- you know, yeah. Um, in in his art as well as as well as his life, he deliberately avoided well worn paths. 
And to his credit, he made it pretty impossible to get pigeonholed into poetry and cartooning, like, into a rut. Yeah. By tossing in a few other careers on top. Songwriter, musician, novelist. The triple threat. He was a renaissance man for fucking short. I had, Absolutely. I really had no idea. No, I, I didn't it, either this, until... Yeah, this would be this fucking deep. But um, in 1959, just a few years before he started to write children's books, he began a pretty damn respectable career in music. How respectable? Well, he was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, won two Grammy Awards, recorded more than a dozen albums, and wrote hundreds of songs that were covered by artists including Chris Christopherson, hmm. Waylon Jennings, Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, shit. Great balls of fire. <laughs> What's Jerry Lee Lewis? Oh, he's, that's he's a thing another, in and of itself. Yeah. Um, the poetry skills Silverstein brought to children's books were easily parlayed into a knack for clever songwriting. Makes sense. Um, and while he didn't have the voice to make it as a performer, he quickly attracted attention from other musicians eager to record his songs, many of which can be found on the recently released The Best of Shel Silverstein, his words, his songs, his friends. Um, of course, it helped that he was considered an exceedingly generous collaborator. He was popularly known for his policy of giving equal credit to anyone who co-wrote a song with him, even if they contributed only a single line or a small idea. Okay. Which not a lot of people will do that. No. Man. You know? Like, I think that, that speaks volumes of his absolutely. character. Yeah. That's why, like, uh, people who donate to the Patreon yeah. get a producer credit. Because right. you are. Like, yeah. you're, you're adding you're, to you're this in your own way, you know? This continue. Um, in the music industry, his generosity paid off, freeing him from monetary squabbles and making him an even more appealing collaborator, and plenty lined up to work with him. Uh, he penned hits, including the Irish Rover's The Unicorn. A long time ago when the earth was green, and it was more kinds of animals than you'd ever seen. They'd run around free while the earth was being born But the loveliest of them all was the unicorn There was green alligators and long-necked geese Some humpty-backed camels and some chimpanzees Some cats and rats and elephants for sure as you're born The loveliest of all was the unicorn Loretta Lynn's One on the Way. But here in Topeka, the rain is a-fallin', the faucet is a-drippin', and the kids are a-ballin'. One of them a-toddlin', and one is a-crawlin', and one's on the way. Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show's uh, Sylvia's mother and cover of the Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone. Wanna see my picture on the cover. Stone. Wanna buy five copies for my mother. Yeah. Stone. Wanna see my Crown jewel of his entire music career. Yeah. Johnny Cash's A Boy Named Slim. Well, my daddy left home when I was three, and he didn't leave much to Ma and me. Just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Well, he must have thought that it was quite a joke, and it got a lot of laughs from a lots of folks. Seems I had to fight my whole life through. 
Some gal would giggle and I'd get red And some guy'd laugh and I'd bust his head I'll tell you, life ain't easy for a boy named Sue Which I didn't know until this, uh, until we started talking about this Yes, yeah. yeah, it's pretty fucking awesome um, On top of all that, he dipped more than just a toe into the dramatic He wrote dozens of plays that were well received by critics Including The Devil and Billy Markham, The Crate, The Lady or the Tiger Show Gorilla and Little Feet, plus the screenplay for Things Change with playwright pal David Mamet. Okay, wow, um, he's a that guy's a serious player. Yeah, yeah. His musical talents also carried over to several movie soundtracks, including an Oscar-nominated song from Postcards on the Edge. Oh, that was written by uh, Carrie Fisher, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. Uh, on the side, he did a, a little acting, most notably a small role in Who Is Harry Kellerman and Why Is He Saying These Terrible Things About Me. Alongside Dustin Hoffman. Okay. Um, not bad for something that probably would have appeared on the ninth page of his resume. <laughs> of course, that wasn't everything. In his abundant spare time, he also penned a few mystery stories. No joke. Which is like, when the fuck does this dude like, find spare time? time? <laughs> you know? Uh, he once said, don't be dependent on anyone else, man, woman, child, or dog. He's like, I want to go everywhere, look at, and listen to everything. You can grow crazy with some of the wonderful stuff there is in life. It's Which is wrong. just restless words from a restless man. Yeah. Um, throughout his life, he didn't stay with a single art form or live at a single residence for too long. The same philosophy also seemed to apply to his love life. He had two kids, Matthew and Shoshana, who she died when she was 11. Oh. Yeah, she had a cerebral, cerebral aneurysm. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Um, I think his son is a doctor now. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Um, but he was never married. Well, I was going to say his dad would probably approve. Yeah. I mean, oh. you know, doing his own thing, not following Pops with Absolutely. Steps to, um, and writing and whatnot. Right. Freedom of all sorts, especially the freedom to create what, when, and however he wanted was vital to him. Taking a path with no real destination doesn't often lead to big bucks, but Shelv was once again the exception to the rule. <laughs> When he died of a heart attack on May 10th, 1999, at the age of 68, he was worth millions. And he died in fucking Florida. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> Key West, uh, Florida. <laughs> Just like, oh, uh, I okay. hate Florida. I know. God damn it. Um, Shell gave only a few interviews during his lifetime, and not many were lengthy. Um, he seemed to have a real aversion to blabbing about his work. In fact, he didn't even like for his stuff to be advertised asking if the excerpts of poems and cartoons be the sole contents of any necessary evil and publish your mandated publicity. Oh, wow. So he did. He was not like, he's a, my book. He was a total renegade. Oh, absolutely. Completely and utterly. Yeah. Good for him. Uh, he once advised that if you want to find out what a writer or a cartoonist really feels, look at his work. Yeah. That's and I think that's beautiful. No, that's absolutely true. Because that's really what it, it should be. Because you pour a lot of yourself into art. Oh, absolutely! It should stand on its fucking own. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty part about art is like I feel like he would want everybody to take their own personal message from whatever he put out. I absolutely know? agree. Which is how it should be. Um, oh, that's why, I like you know, the the golden saying: "Art is subjective." Yeah. Yep. Like, fucking believe it or not, I'm sure there's somebody that gets real deep meaning from Nickelback songs. <laughs> you know? <laughs> God bless their souls. And to each their own, but... This is how you remind me. Wow. I never did make it as a wise man. Wow, shit. Wow. 
And that time I got arrested, I, I couldn't cut it as a poor man stealing either. Damn, look at this photograph. Every time I do, it makes me laugh. Huh? How did eyes get so red? <laughs> what the fuck is on Joey's head? Come on. Um, he believed that written works needed to be read on paper, the correct paper for the particular work. And he would usually not allow his poems and stories to be published unless he could choose the type, size, shape, color, and quality of the paper. That's baller. That's fucking awesome. Did you got clout if you can fucking arrange that? Oh, yeah. Because um, he was a book collector, so he took seriously like the feel of the paper and the look of the book. I definitely understand that. Yeah, because like if you, you if you have a book that's really fucking good, but like the binding is too stiff yeah, or, like, or the papers, too I loose. hate books that like the page is white. Yeah, like if you don't have that like kind of like tannish color, yeah, like, like stop. Like, yeah, because it's like this is too much like a textbook. Yes, yes. Um, most of his books did not have paperback editions because he did not want his work to be diminished in any way. I understand that. Paperbacks, I, I prefer hardbacks. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Because people fucking bend the cover back and shit. Yeah, it's like, stop. Yeah. Stop it. Um, his estate continues to control copyright permissions of his work and has blocked the quotations of that work in at least one biographical treatment. Boom. Which is good. I, yeah. I don't think he would want a movie made about his life. Hell no, you know, he, like he dude. Was, he was very much like, this is who I am. I don't need the whole world to know. Damn the man. You know? Exactly. Um, his bibliography is fucking pants, okay? I bet. Uh, he released Take 10 um, in 1955, which was uh, reissued in paperback no. as Grab Your Socks in 1956. Uh, now Here's My Plan in 1960, Uncle Shelby's ABZ book in 1960, Playboy's TVGB's 1963. <laughs> That's clever. Uh, Uncle Shelby's story of Lacidio, The Lion Who Shot Back, 1963, A Giraffe and a Half, 1964, The Giving Tree, 1964, Who Wants a Cheap Rhinoceros, 1964, Uncle Shelby's Zoo, Don't Pump the Glump, and Other Fantasies, 1964. <laughs> More Playboy's TV Jeebies, 1965. Where the Sidewalk Ends, 1974. The Missing Piece, 1976. The Devil and Billy Markham, 1979. Different Dances, 1979. A Light in the Attic, 1981. The Missing Piece Meets the Big O, 1981. Falling Up, 1996. It's so weird because, like, <clears throat> between, like, more Playboy's TV Jeebies yeah. and Where the Sidewalk Ends, that's almost ten years. Right. To have been putting out like four, three or four books a year, yeah, and then just I'm gonna take ten yeah, years I'm off. I'm gonna take some time off. And then the same with the missing piece meets the big O in 1981 to falling up in 1996. Um, draw a skinny elephant 1998, and then the rest were released uh, posthumously. posthumously. Yeah, um, Runny Rabbit in 2005. Don't bump the glump and other fantasies as a reissue in 2008. Everything on it, 2011, and Runny Rabbit Returns, 2017. Okay. Um, in terms of in terms of albums, his discography included Harry Jazz in 1959, Inside Folk Songs in 1962, Shel Silverstein's Stag Party in 1963, I'm So Good That I Don't Have to Brag 1965, Damn. <laughs> Drain My Brain 1967. 
Boy Named Sue and Other Country Songs, 1969. Okay. Ned Kelly, 1970, which is a film soundtrack. Right, right. Um, Who is Harry Kellerman and why is he saying these terrible things about me, 1971. Freaking at the Freakers Ball, 1972. Crouching on the Outside, 1973. Songs and Stories, 1978. The Great Conch Train Robbery, 1980. Where the Sidewalk Ends, 1984. A Light in the Attic, 1985. Underwaterland, 2002, posthumously. Hmm, hmm. The best of Shel Silverstein, his words, his songs, his friends, 2005. Twistable Turntable Man, a musical tribute to the songs of Shel Silverstein, 2010. Um, and that brings us Damn. to the guy smart as a fox, our smart little friend, The Fact in the Box. I love it. He has a song called Fuck Em, wherein he rants about his landlord, his parents, bar fights, junkies, and children, rasping out the line, Fuck kids! See, now, that's like my motto. Not necessarily fuck kids, but fuck em. Yeah, this fuck is one em. of my oh, lifelong yeah. mottos. Yeah. Hey, woman come around and hand me a line about a lot of little orphan kids suffering and dying. Shit, I give her a quarter because one of them might be mine. Yeah, the rest of those bastards who keep right on crying, I mean, fuck kids, throw up on your shoulder, piss in your lap, never give you nothing, fuck them. Um, he was known to have hated being compared to Dr. Seuss, because he did not like him very much. Well, considering what we know about Dr. Seuss, yeah, it's, it's not probably, hard to imagine. Yeah, it's pretty spot on. I don't really... Care for myself either. Yeah, the the hate is well deserved. Yeah, I got an email. I think from Hot Topic it was about Doctor Seuss. I'm like, really? Uh, are you sure you want to go that route? It's one of those things where it's like, well, you should try to separate the artist from the art. No, uh, mm, I'm okay. Yeah, it uh, seems like there's quite a bit in- entwined. Yeah, yeah. With, <laughs> with that it's one. too much to separate at that yeah. point. Yeah. Um, in 2002, he was posthumously inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. Which is excellent. Hell yeah. In his life, he was a big fan of traveling. In the course of his travels, he visited the nudist colony of New Jersey, um, the Haight-Ashbury District in San Francisco, the White Sox training camp in Chicago. That's his favorite team. Yeah, that's what's up. Uh, he also visited Latin American countries like Cuba, Mexico, different countries in Africa, and Europe, European countries like England, France, and Switzerland. In Cuba, Cuba, he was there, he actually interviewed Fidel Castro. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> now, I would have fucking loved to have been a fly on that wall. Yeah? Because you do got these two fucking eccentric dudes with crazy beards. Yes, like, yeah. Shit, shit. It's like us. <laughs> Good point. Um, he died of a heart attack on either May 8th, 9th, or 10th in 1999 in his home in Key West, Florida. His body was found by his housekeepers on May 10th. Ugh. So it might have been like the day before or yeah, the day before that. the day before that. Even. Um, he was buried in West Lawn Cemetery in Norwich, Illinois, which That's is like 40 minutes from, from here. Us. Yeah. And so we reached the end of another wild ride here at Toys R Us. Um, and I had no fucking idea Dude. how deep of a rabbit hole 
Charles Wolfstein's life would turn out to be. To call that a rabbit hole is an understatement. That's more like one of those Looney Tunes fucking space gems. Yeah. <laughs> 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 fucking wrong turn in Albuquerque, Albuquerque fucking rabbit hole, you know? Yeah. Um, He was a simple man, but not simple-minded, you know? Definitely like, not. A, a lot of hats that man wore. Yeah. Um, if you like what you heard and you'd like to support us, you should consider grabbing yourself a producer credit by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Toys R Us podcast. Uh, we have several tiers, the lowest being $3, but all of them get you a nostalgic goodie box. And a producer credit. And a producer credit. Um, make sure you follow us on all social medias. We're under Toys R Us podcast on all of them. Um, just look for our logo. And when you find us, leave us a comment telling us your favorite Shel Silverstein poem. Yeah. Until next time, remember, if you are a dreamer, come in. And remember, you will always be a Toys R Us kid. I'd like to thank our producer-level patrons, including Jeremy, Jessica, Natalie, Amy, Nicole, Nicole, Patrick, Juanita, Shannon, and Steven. Thank you so much for your support. It really means the world to us.